Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. For just a few moments tonight, we're going to take some time to look at the first of two crowns of our King, King Jesus. And as we gather tonight specifically and look at this first crown, we're going to look at the crowning first and then a little later, the coronation of Jesus in this first crown. I want to take just a few moments though here to talk about the choosing of a king for a crown. And I'm going to be walking through Matthew chapter 26. If you want to take your scriptures out, you're welcome to, but you won't need to. What I want you to see tonight, though, in our time together is that Jesus wore a crown of thorns to bear our sin that he might reconcile us to God. You know, crowns are never earned. Crowns are chosen. Crowns are chosen, and they're chosen by uh, a a person who is um, uh, sovereign. They are chosen of the person who by birth shall be chosen for the crown and whose royal bloodline will be able to maintain the crown that they are chosen for. And so in the choosing of a king and for this crown, it must be one that is deemed fit for a crown. That's the qualification for choosing who will receive the crown. And that's what I want us to look at in these few moments and consider how was it that Jesus was chosen for the crown that he was given. Surely the crown that we speak of tonight, the crown of thorns, it's a crown like no other. It stands for what no other has ever stood for. But when I turn to Matthew chapter 26 and his account of the gospels and look first of all at verses three through five, it says this, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so in this first move, we began to see the teaching ministry of Jesus now move to the sacrificial act of Jesus. And this first, we see the religious leaders of the Jews and even the leaders of the people themselves devising a plot to kill him. But they alone could not choose Jesus for a crown. Only a few verses later, beginning verse 14 through 16, we see the second move of the choosing of Jesus as fit for this crown. And we learn that Jesus was double-crossed by betrayal from one of his closest disciples. You know that story. Judas himself, verse 14 records, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
And so in the second move of Jesus being chosen as fit for the crown, we see that he was betrayed by one of his closest disciples. But while Satan put it in Judas's heart, the scripture tells us that it was Judas who willingly complied to carry it out. But he and he alone could not choose Jesus to be king by himself. A little later in the chapter, verse 31, and we'll pick it up again in verse 56, we learn that once Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, his disciples deserted him for fear of their own life, not knowing what was going to happen. Now, he was unlawfully arrested, but in that moment, it must have been so traumatic for them that they didn't know where to turn or what to do or how to respond You know, it is said that leadership at the top is lonely, and surely Jesus experienced the loneliest moment of any as everyone, even those closest to him, deserted him in that moment. But all of these choices combined in one act weren't sufficient to choose Jesus as king alone. And then it tells us Once they took, the guards took Jesus and they began to carry him and prepare him for trial, that Peter was standing outside near a fire and someone said to him, hey, weren't you with the man that they arrested earlier? And and you know the narrative of that. Three times this, this, uh, this happened to Peter such that the third time it happened, it tells us that Peter went into a curse laden rage to deny Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. And here we see of the most intimate of all, his leader of his disciples and likely one of his closest friends denied him three times, just as Jesus had told him he would do. But not even his closest friend could choose Jesus for the crowning to become king on this night. Finally, in chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel, verses one and two, it says this, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Here's where we learn that the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, they had the power to accuse and condemn. They didn't have the power to execute. And so they handed him over to the Roman rulers and delivered him up to be killed by the religious leaders at the will of the people. But ultimately, ultimately not even the leaders and all the people could choose this king as fit for the crown alone. You know, if, if I'm honest with you, this is not sounding like a crown anyone would ever want to have to wear. As a matter of fact, we know that even Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there be any other way, let that be. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, friends, those who would wear a crown, they must be chosen by a sovereign. They must be chosen by one who has the power to determine who is fit. They must be chosen by their birth. And to have the right birth so that their royal bloodline would maintain the throne that that crown represents. And so tonight we have to ask, who chose Jesus as fitting for his crown of thorns? 
I think the answer will likely surprise some of you, though many of you already likely know. Was it the wicked religious leaders? Yes, it was. Was it the willful betrayal of his closest followers? Yes, it was that as well. Was it the worry of his followers that caused them to run in fear? Yes, they as well. Or the curse-laden rage of his closest friend? Yes, he was part of it as well. Was it the will of the people and the wanton plan of the Jewish leaders? Yes, again, they were very much a critical part of this. As a matter of fact, all of these people were part of choosing Jesus as fit for the crown, but none of them ultimately, and not even all of them together, could determine it. You see, the crown of thorns was no ordinary crown. It's a crown of, as Pastor Chad said, sin. It's a crown of shame, of guilt, and of condemnation. It is a crown that represents a throne that Jesus was not qualified in his own doing to ascend to. But he willingly submitted himself to receive it. And while all uh, were part of the decision, only the sovereign ones choosing Jesus for the crown of thorns could cause it to happen. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 tells us this. It is God who put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God is the sovereign one who chose Jesus as fit for the first crown of our king. And 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 goes on to tell us that it was God who so loved us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, that word propitiation tells us that God who is sovereign is the one that put forth his son to bear the sacrifice for sin. And we know this even from the first book of the Bible, what some meant for evil, all the others in the fittingness, God meant for good. In his great love, it is God who chose Jesus to wear our crown of thorns. You see, friends, Jesus wore a crown of thorns to bear our sin and reconcile us to God. Well, in our first move tonight, we, we saw where Jesus was chosen for his first crown, the crown of thorns. And he was chosen by the father who sent him, his only begotten son, the scripture tells us, for the very purpose of bearing the crown that we remember on this night. And when we come to this second uh, move of the story for tonight, I want us to see the second great aspect of Jesus's crown of thorns. We saw in the first the choosing, but every crown needs a coronation. Every crown needs a coronation and that, that celebration of crowning, if you will. And my, my argument for us tonight is by the choosing, by the coronation, and by the crowning of Christ, who is the king, who wore the crown of thorns, there is a compulsion for us to believe in what he has done. As I stated already, this was not his crown because of 
him his own self or his own actions, but rather it was a crown that he willingly took on for others. And so every crowned king must be coronated to his royal throne. And I want to walk through the coronation of Jesus in his crown of thorns. A few verses later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 through 14, it tells us that Jesus was delivered to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the highest governing authority in the region. He was the governor of Judea, and he was even above Herod himself. And he was appealed to because, as I said, the Jewish leaders had no authority to carry out condemnation or sentencing. They could only sentence and make recommendation to the Roman government. But they had to hand their prisoners over to the Roman government for the execution to be carried out. And so Pilate receives Jesus, not really knowing much about him, and he interrogates him in order to corroborate whether or not the accusation of the guilt of crimes that the Jewish leaders accused him of was true or not. And if it was true, were they crimes that were worthy of death? And in this coronation, if you will, this interrogation of Pilate to Jesus, it says, are you the one who claims to be king of the Jews? And Jesus' only response to him, it is as you have said. It is as you have said. But he was silent beyond that. And so Pilate continues to ask questions and to interrogate. And it tells us in verse 14, speaking of Jesus, it says, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Here is his coronation speech. He gave no response. And that was... An amazing speech to Pilate. We'll see in a moment. It'll be the same for Herod. Maybe I should try that sometime. Get up and say nothing and the people are amazed. And yet that's what it says here. Ultimately what he was amazed at was that he would not try to refute the charges. Someone's facing death. Why wouldn't they not argue for their innocence? And surely he was not guilty and Pilate knew that he was not guilty because the text tells us that Pilate knew of the manipulation and the coercion of the Jewish leaders. He had heard the rumors. Word had reached him that they were putting this man forth for death, not because he was guilty, but because they just didn't like him. And Pilate didn't want to play into such an injustice but he was being backed into a corner. The text also tells us that Pilate's wife had told him, have nothing to do with this man, for I have seen in a dream that he is innocent and you don't want your blood or his blood on your hands. And so Pilate tries to do the dignitary type thing and he sends him to Herod, the other governor. Over in Luke chapter 23, we find where Herod is now receiving Jesus. 
And he receives Jesus gladly because Herod, if you do any study on him, he was always glad to get a little bit of spotlight in order to promote his political position a little more. And so he was more familiar with Jesus. He was the one who knew about Jesus and had even bantered over him. And he too interrogates Jesus and it tells us that he's impressed with Jesus' speech. Why? Again. Because he makes no effort to defend his innocence. But while he acknowledges Jesus' innocence, there is a more powerful force at play for Herod. He is trying to satisfy the people. He is afraid of the people. And so it tells us that he, in his trying to satisfy the people, he arrays Jesus in kingly splendor. He puts a robe upon him that is purple, that, uh, that represents royalty, and, and he tries to do everything that he can to coerce some kind of rebuttal out of Jesus, but he gets nothing. And so he continues to mock him. He brings his guards in, and they begin to mock him. And it tells us that they beat him, that they spit on him, that they harassed him in every way. And then it tells us that because they could find no other way to coerce a reaction from him, they wove together a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head as the ultimate sign of ridicule of this king of the Jews, so they said. Finally, when Herod was exhausted by his mocking, he sends Jesus back to Pilate because ultimately he found no guilt in him and he needed Pilate to make the final decision. It's very interesting. Luke records something about Herod and Pilate that we don't see in the other gospel accounts. First of all, we learned they couldn't stand each other, but the trial of Jesus united them in this. Isn't that interesting? That, that Jesus' coronation, if you will, unites Pilate and Herod, who before this could not stand one another. And how did it unite them? Well, it says that they became friends after this. But here's the way it united them. They both agreed with this testimony. We find no guilt in him, nothing deserving of death, nothing that has been done by him. And so Pilate says to the people, behold your king. And surely he's mocking them thinking that the people will give in and cease the accusations. But the people respond to him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. The known murderer who's already in prison. And the chief priest, representative of all the people, say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. You see, friends, you, you can't kill an innocent man unless his innocence is what qualifies him to die. This is the crown of thorns. This is the coronation of the one who was innocent by every testimony of those who interrogated him. 
And yet he was the one who had been chosen by the sovereign because of his birth and because of his bloodline and chosen even by his own will of submission to the sovereign to die for all who were worthy of the cross. You see, Jesus ascending a throne was not about ascending a throne as we typically think of, but rather he was conquering a throne that was already occupied. It was occupied by every person who had ever committed a sin against a holy God. But their bearing this throne did not satisfy the demands to atone for their own sin. And so while they occupied this throne, and while even the prince of evil and darkness, Satan himself, occupied it. None could do anything about it. And those worthy of the throne were not ultimately qualified to satisfy it. It was his innocence. It was Jesus' innocence that was his prerequisite by birth. He occupied the throne of condemnation, his cross of death, which would be his throne, or his throne for the crown of thorns. Because we were the ones who were guilty in sin. He was innocent. We stand guilty before God. Jesus wore his crown of thorns for our guilt and for our shame. And he occupied our cross to die for our condemnation. So when we trust in him, we know it is the love of God that takes away our sin because it is God who chose him. It is God who sent him. Ultimately, it is God who crowned him. It is God who crucified him. And he did so to be a propitiation for the sins of all who would believe in him. Friends, when we look at the cross today, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we say that's my king because that's my cross that he bore for me. That's my king who died in my place, who took my sin upon him and bore my sin for me. He was innocent, I am guilty. But because God chose to put him forward to wear a crown of thorns, because Jesus chose to humble himself to bear our shame and our guilt of sin. He wore the crown of thorns as the ultimate condemnation for sin. Listen to these two aspects of Jesus' crown of thorns that compel us to believe in him. I've always been struck by the scripture references and how it is that they align and agree here. John chapter three, verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in John's letter, 1 John chapter three, verse 16 as well says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so tonight we look upon the cross and we behold our king enthroned upon it who wears the crown for us and we say, that's my king. He took my place. He bore my sin that I might be reconciled 
to God. Jesus wore a crown of thorns to bear my sin, my shame, my guilt, my condemnation, that I might be reconciled to God. Friends, my plea to you tonight is very simple. Have you looked at the cross of Jesus Christ and said, that's my king? Have you looked upon the crucifixion of the sinless, perfect son of God and put your faith in his work that was for you? There is no other way to God. You either believe in Jesus or you reject God altogether. There will be no other way ever presented. I plead with you tonight, look upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And if for the first time, put your faith in him and say, that's my king. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Wash me and make me clean. And bring your Holy Spirit to come and live in me that I might be reconciled to God. Can I pray for you tonight? Father, we come before you tonight. Our hearts are full of all that King Jesus has done for us. Even though looking upon the cross, Lord, is very difficult, it teaches us just how real sin was and is even today for us. But Lord, when we look upon the cross, we see one whom you sent for that purpose and who willingly laid down his life for us. May we not look upon it tonight and walk away with neglect or with apathy, but may we put our faith in Christ and his finished work upon the cross that we might be reconciled to you as your word teaches us. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Now friends, we're gonna take a few moments to come to the Lord's table tonight. And we're gonna do it a little differently even for those who are part of LifePoint. We are going to come to the three stations across the front. And at each station, we'll have the same elements, the cup and the bread. And I'll ask you just for sense of logistics that if you're in the back by the wall or on this side, if you'll come down this aisle and flow out towards the wall. And the same thing on this side, if you'll flow out that way, that'll help traffic flow. And if you're in the middle here, if you'll come down this way and move in this direction, that would be very helpful. We receive these elements tonight, friends, because in receiving them, we are acknowledging Jesus is giving them to us as a gift to look upon the cross and remember what he has done for us. To hear his words, it is finished. 